This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. The experts at Web.com want to build your business a successful website for free, just like we did for these current Web.com customers. We've used and and looked at other website designers, but there's nobody better than Web.com. Web.com can build your website in as little as seven days free. Plus, we'll promote it on all the major search engines like Google, Yahoo, and Bing. If after 30 days you're happy, we'll continue to provide promotion, hosting, support, and maintenance, all for one low monthly fee. If not, cancel and pay nothing. If you're in business today and you don't have a web presence, you won't be taken seriously. Call right now and you'll also get a free .com or .net domain name for your new website powered by VeriSign, the world's leading domain name provider. Call 800-490-1099 or go to web.com slash radio. That's 800-490-1099. No upfront charge for site build, after which ongoing fees apply. Rights to site are relinquished when canceled. Domain included during active service, after which fees apply. Now, spreading freedom across the nation, this is 3, 2, 1. The Buck Sexton Show. Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hut. Great to have you as always. Phone lines open, 888-900-3393. Really appreciate you making the time. Best part of my day, every day. Chilling with y'all. That's right, I said y'all in the Freedom Hut. So thank you for being here. Uh, I know there's a lot of uh, Trump news, Trump administration in waiting. He's not even president yet, but... Not hearing a lot about Obama. I think Obama's feeling a little left out. So he's giving a speech today on his counterterrorism policy because he wants people to pay attention to him. Uh, we can talk a bit about that. And also, I might just sort of get it, get into the weeds with you uh, somewhat on what's going on in, in Mosul, a city I know uh, well. And maybe one day I'll get the permission to talk to you about how, how well I know that city. But I've I try to avoid... The eye of Sauron from the federal government and talking too much about some of these things. So there you have it. You can read between the lines on that one. But yeah, Mosul's a Mosul's a hellhole. Uh, certainly now was before as well. We'll get there. Uh, we got a lot of fantastic guests today. I, I don't know. I mean, it's one of these days where, like I am fond of telling you, we've got about five hours of show and three hours of time. So we'll see what we can do. First, I wanted to start out, if I could, uh, with. Uh, the news that is not going to get as much attention, I think, in, in the press as it should. Um, but it ties into some of the broader themes that we're seeing play out in this country with Trumpism and the repudiation of the elites, or at least the elites' view of things like multiculturalism and a sort of globalist worldview. And it is Angela Merkel. Yeah, guten Tag. Angela is always just going around Germany making sure that that everything is, you know, precise and the trains run on the time and it's very clean streets. Uh, I guess she does other things than make sure the streets are clean, but you know what I'm saying. She governs with the precision of a Swiss watch. I guess she's German. Now I'm really messing things up. I'm mixing metaphors or just mixing up my countries. Uh, Angela Merkel has said today that she supports a nationwide ban on full face veils worn by Muslim women, the so-called burqa ban. And 
Now, a few things on this. Um, I, I see a lot, a lot going on here. There, there's, first of all, the rightness or wrongness of a burqa ban, which we'll talk about. There's the about face you're seeing here from Merkel, whom last year was uh, sort of snarkily referred to by some online as uh, nationalism's woman of the year because she allowed a million uh, Muslim refugees into Germany with very little. This whole notion, by the way, that that there's vetting of refugees that come from war zones, this is essentially preposterous. Always keep that in mind. And people say, oh, no, they're vetted. There's all these vetting programs. There's so much vetting. No, they show up they, with the clothes on their backs and they say, this is what happened to me. And people are sympathetic and people, I think, generally want to be good and helpful to their fellow human beings. I'd like to think so. That's a whole separate show, whether that's true or not. But you have a million refugees showed up and some members of the Islamic State use that refugee flow to penetrate the country. There have been numerous mass casualty terrorist attacks in Europe coinciding with this outflow of refugees from the Syrian civil war, uh, as well as from North Africa, mostly from Libya, into European uh, into European states. And there have also been many plots that are thwarted. And I always think that those get much less attention than they should, right? We, it's a, a usually a, a page C7 news item when you know, five uh, refugees of Syrian descent are found you know, with bomb-making materials and the plans to destroy, you know, three schools in Hamburg or something. People, oh, I'm glad our counterterrorism services caught that one. Yeah, me too. But a society doesn't want to constantly live on the precipice of catastrophic terror and, and horrific violence inflicted upon it for its own goodness, right, for the taking in of refugees or for its multicultural Ethic, which whether that's a good or not, is also something that we will discuss. Um, but what's interesting, if you look at you know human history, you go back quite a ways. Um, there's not a lot of evidence for disparate cultures living side by side in harmony. Right? There's plenty of evidence for people of different uh, different skin colors or people of different uh, ethnic origins who subscribe to similar ideology they can live peacefully together right the same ideology the same culture yeah they can live peacefully together so that that's the good news the bad news is that uh, deeply disparate cultures and deeply disparate political ideologies don't mix very well this is there's not a lot of evidence that this is going to turn out well and when you look at for example and this is so on the one side of it we can be happy that the problem is not uh, one of uh, the, what, what leads to conflict historically is not ethnicity or race. It is much more often creed, ideology and idea. Right. What people believe, what they think should be the governing philosophy for their day to day lives, whether it's religious based or it's based in the state, whether we're talking about totalitarianism, communism or we're talking about uh, religious wars. Um, there are multi-ethnic societies that do very well. Plenty of them. Right. I'm not saying there's of course, there's always conflict among people, you know, and there and there are singularly uh, or there are sort of uh, unipolar ethnic societies that don't do well. Right. I mean, look at the Irish and the English uh, going going at it over Northern Ireland and people say, oh, well, there's a religious difference. I mean, not a big one. Uh, So but the the notion that you can have 
cultures that are in direct opposition to each other living side by side. That's where things get more complicated. That's where I think you'd have to really stretch to find an example of peaceful, long-term, peaceful and prosperous coexistence. Like I said, you can have a multi-ethnic society, people of different races, uh, ethnicities, creeds, uh, getting along fine. This country, uh, this country at least for a period of time, you could say, I know people would say, oh, but look at the legacy of slavery. I totally understand. Very valid point. Uh, but this country, certainly in the post-World War II, post-civil rights era, uh, is an example. Uh, there are others where people of different, and I, and it's America, of course, we're talking in the context of a country where you have people from all over the world. I mean, we are uh, not unique in that sense entirely. There are European countries with lots of people of different ethnic origins and backgrounds who are living together peacefully and in and, and a prosperous fashion. But there has to be something. And I think this is a thesis that I'm trying to get to here. Uh, there has to be something that binds everyone together. You know, in this country, it's the Constitution. It's a rule of law. It's a sort of reverence or at least a, a, a basic respect for the American founding and what we're trying to accomplish here. Uh, what it is to be an American, which in and of itself is a broad uh, a broad question that I think a lot of people would have different answers to, but there's some basics to it that I think we would largely agree upon. So you look at Germany, uh, and, and by the way, I've talked to you before about Orwell and how he talks about what really makes an Englishman an Englishman, and he had a few sort of anecdotal but I think very poignant uh, poignant things that he wrote in uh, in in a series of essays about how you know an Englishman will always take the position. Um, that the, the law matters, right? Rule of law in all circumstances is a very, he thought was a very sort of English trait. Now he's writing in the 1940s, but, and I think Americans would believe that that's true too. And that even the lowliest among the British people and the, the highest in the House of Lords was still governed by some law, right? That's a particularly English trait. Uh, you look at Germany now and what is happening in Germany, and there are questions being asked about, okay, what are the boundaries? What are the outer limits of tolerance for this sort of multi, multicultural, remember, not multi-ethnic, multicultural society that Germany is not just sort of embracing, but is, is in many ways uh, holds itself up as kind of the epitome of what this is and what this, what this can be. And there has been an enormous backlash to this. Right. I, I th and when you think about this, it it makes sense in a lot of different contexts. You, you see uh, people who speak the same language, who have the same uh, general aspirations in their day to day lives. Uh, speaking the same language, by the way, is is very important, uh, but share basic cultural traits. And, you know, they tend to get along. And uh, the good news, I think, uh, returning to, to an earlier idea is that you know racism isn't just evil, but it's also irrational, right? So if you see somebody and you say, I'm going to make a judgment based upon the color of your skin, that's not based in any reality, right? That is, in fact, just a sort of instinctual uh, or a, 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 a hatred that comes out of a sort of a reactionary mindset, right? The other. But when somebody shows up and they say, well, you have your way of living, but I actually have this other very different way of approaching life. I see things quite differently than you do. In fact, 
I have my way of living, and I think you should adopt it. That tends to get people. Uh, that tends to get people in opposition to each other. That can be a situation that spurs conflict, right? And what you see in Germany isn't, uh, at least I, I believe, but we're talking about Germany, and obviously Germany has a very dark history when it comes to these things, which also, of course, influences the way that it, uh, you know, it deals with these things today. But what you have is a society that has opened itself up, or at least the elites have opened themselves up to a large influx of people who may or may not, and I think in the aggregate there's an argument to be made that uh, may not is probably the more accurate description, share these basic attitudes about daily life, share a sort of civilizational outlook. Right? And now I could get into Huntington's, Huntington's uh, class of, a clash of civilizations and how today what we're seeing play out in, in Germany with this conversation is really just an extension of that. Um, somebody who wears a full burqa is overwhelmingly, but not always, going to have a very different view of a whole bunch of things in day-to-day life, including rule of law, the rights of women, the rights of, of uh, you know, w- within a family, legal rights, inheritance rights, uh, all sorts of things. He's going to have a different point of view than a you know a sort of upper middle class, uh, college, university educated. German engineer of any ethnic background, right? This is, this is what you see happening. I mean, you could have the South Asian immigrant to Germany who has a PhD and is largely, let's say, largely adopted the sort of secular German attitude towards a lot of things, completely integrated into German society and everything is fine. But you have somebody who shows up who wants to wear a full burqa head to toe, and it not it's not just a security issue. Which it, which it is. You should be able to see people's faces, and this is a long established, uh, this is a, a long established precept in a lot of places for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, but also, it's it signifies a an adherence to an interpretation of Islam that is at odds with Western liberal society. Period. And that's what Germany's recognizing right now, or at least Angela Merkel is giving lip service to. I, how much she believes it, I don't really know. How much this is just her trying to sort of save herself politically after what seemed to be a disastrous decision to, I mean, a, a million refugees for Germany, that's a lot. A lot of people that need care and feeding, that's a lot of uh, deep psychological trauma and wounds uh, that need to be addressed. And I'm sure the German people feel like, first of all, they're already paying the bills for their neighbors to the south in Greece and such. They're, they're paying the bills for other Europeans already. The idea that they should take on all these refugees and that the German people weren't consulted, it was just uh, Angela Merkel making this decision, their chancellor. Um, that, by the way, whenever I say chancellor, I think of, isn't it like Chancellor Palpatine? Isn't that the guy from Star Wars, right? Chancellor sounds like quite a, quite a title, a grandiose title. Um, she has realized, I think, that the German people aren't with her on this issue. Um, and meaning that a completely a, a an open society has to be open to those who are completely intolerant. A multicultural society has to lie down and not put up a fight against cultures and against cultural ideas and, and mores that are in direct conflict with the home country's culture. This is this is where they finally tested the outer limits here, and I think she's realized that Germany that the German people are in line with the French, who have had this in place for a long time, and I think, by the way, to their credit, 
the Belgians, uh, the Bulgarians, uh, the Swiss, the Italians, they all have some form of, quote, burqa ban in place. And it's about a lot more than just not allowing a garment to be worn. There's, a, there's much more than that. That's not just at, uh, sort of symbolized here, but that's at stake in this conversa- uh, conversation, in this discussion. And I want to get into what that also means for us here and how it plays out here in just a few minutes. 888-900-3393. Phone lines are open. Team, we'll be right back. Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. The experts at Web.com want to build your business a successful website for free, just like we did for these current Web.com customers. We've used and and looked at other website designers, but there's nobody better than Web.com. Web.com can build your website in as little as seven days free. Plus, we'll promote it on all the major search engines like Google, Yahoo, and Bing. If after 30 days you're happy, we'll continue to provide promotion, hosting, support, and maintenance, all for one low monthly fee. If not, cancel and pay nothing. If you're in business today and you don't have a web presence, you won't be taken seriously. Call right now and you'll also get a free .com or .net domain name for your new website powered by VeriSign, the world's leading domain name provider. Call 800-490-1099 or go to web.com slash radio. That's 800-490-1099. No upfront charge for site build, after which ongoing fees apply. Rights to site are relinquished when canceled. Domain included during active service, after which fees apply. Dispensing the truth. This is Buck Sexton. On the Blaze Radio Network. Team sponsor this half hour is Super Beats. You know, beetroot juice was used by Olympic athletes for its stamina-boosting effects, and it caused waves at the last Olympics. Clinical studies prove that two glasses of beetroot juice per day could increase stamina by 16%. Now, here's some key facts you should know about. Beet juice is rich in nitrates, which help muscles use oxygen more efficiently. And if you want to get beets without having to actually eat beets... Your best option is Super Beets. It's better than regular beets and beet juice because Super Beets are specially grown, non-GMO, and protected by a light-drying process, which is also the secret to why it tastes so darn good. I feel confident offering this to you, Team Buck, because I take Super Beets, and I think they are delicious, and they give me quite an energy boost every time. Call 800-311-4367 or go to teambuckbeets.com. Get a 30-day supply free. It comes with your first order and is backed by a money-back guarantee. Also receive a free book, Beat the Odds, and free shipping on your entire order. You'll love the results you'll feel with your first free canister guaranteed or your money back. 800-311-4367, teambuckbeats.com, 800-311-4367, or go to teambuckbeats.com. So back on this burqa. You know, Merkel signifies a lot here because, one, uh, she's trying to reposition herself politically because she has shown herself to be a sort of out-of-touch globalist elite, even to Europeans, which is saying something. Uh, and the consequences of her policy of a, a sort of completely open-ended uh, multiculturalism and treating the German taxpayer as though they have an obligation to sort of foot the bill for whomever wants to come, uh, that 
has consequences. And the distaste that I think a lot of ordinary people have in this country for the elites is based on very similar grounds. We are told that any sort of opposition to taking in large numbers of refugees is rooted in racism, or we are told that any uh, imposed actual uh, limitations on immigration that are enforced are the result of xenophobia, and we are told that, in fact, the people who are coming here, particularly those who are coming here illegally, are in some way better, harder working, more deserving than Americans who are here. That's said, and it's unchallenged all the time. You know, they're doing the jobs Americans won't do and uh, just want to come and contribute. And I guess all these Americans, all these tens of millions of Americans that are out of the labor force just don't want to contribute somehow. They just have no interest. They just want to kind of sit on their hands. Uh, but the separation between the people that make decisions, like the Merkels of the world, and yes, the sort of Pelosi's and the Clintons and the Obamas, um, as to who gets to stay and what the reasons are for allowing them to stay. And those of us who not only pay the bills, but also live in the communities where immigrants, uh, particularly re- immigrants of the sort of refugee uh, variety, live, have to deal with what that actually means, what that assimilation process can be like, and what the costs are on school systems and in terms of crime and even just things like English as a second language classes and all of that. Um, To have a discussion about this and to talk about something that is, say, I don't know, an American culture, a culture that we can all share, but that is a real thing that should be shared, that shouldn't be off limits. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Let's take some callers. Richard in Washington. You're on the Buck Sexton Show. Welcome. Yeah, hi, Buck. Thanks. Uh, like I told your screen call uh, call screener, when did immigration and immigrants start coming out of the federal budget? There was a time when immigrants and immigration had to pay for itself. Now it's a line item in the in the budget. Hmm. Um, I didn't even know that, to be honest with you. Well, so what's the difference? The, the difference is what exactly? I mean, explain. I, did, I, I don't know this distinction. Well, there was a time when immigrants came into the country legally one at a time, and they couldn't come in unless they had a job lined up and or a sponsor, and it would not displace an American worker. But now we have immigrants coming in, getting off the plane, getting their uh what their their food stamps their section 8 vouchers and medicaid cards and turn them loose uh, well yeah the, the the parts of our immigration history that the public um is ignorant of are are there's many of them. there are many parts of it for example that one out of three immigrants that came here in the early 20th century returned to their home countries because they just couldn't hack it here and it was just too hard uh, because there was no option to just go on the dole. There was no option to get federal benefits. And people say, oh, well, immigrants can't access federal benefits. Uh, that's not true. Uh, first of all, they do, well, I- illegally in many, many cases. 
Uh, and anybody who's lived in an immigrant heavy area will talk about what it's like to go to an ER, which is essentially health care for, in, in some places, the illegal immigrant community. Um, this was, by the way, told to us when they were trying to get Obamacare through. This was something they were willing to discuss then and, and discuss openly because it served their purposes. But now to bring it up, I'm sure, is bigoted or racist or mean or, or whatever. Look, Ang- Angela Merkel, back to this uh, face veil ban situation, uh, a so-called burqa ban. But it's really a face veil ban. Uh, I mean, the burqa, uh, we've talked about this before, but just by way of <laughs> team, by way of review, uh, the burqa is what you see in primarily uh, in Afghanistan, Pakistan, so it's generally a South South Asian garment, and it covers everything, and there's actually gauze across the eyes. I mean, if you go on Google Images and, and search, you know, burqa, you'll see the you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. And then there's variations on it. There's a niqab, which is a face veil, but doesn't have gauze over the eyes, but it covers the entirety of the head and the face, and all you can see is essentially the exposed eyes and, and the bridge of the nose. Uh, there's uh, a shador, which is like a long coat in... Uh, in Iran, there's the abaya, which is a full body covering, but it does not cover the face, which is what is uh, in many cases worn in, in Saudi Arabia. Uh, so it's sort of this long black, um, you know, again, the best thing to do is to go on Google Images and you'll see what I'm talking about. It, it can cover, I mean, it, it can cover the face as well if you add a niqab to it, right? So... Uh, you get the full black head-to-toe covering there. Um, but the abaya does not necessarily cover the face the way that the burqa does. The burqa has a gauze strip. Like, there's no there's no show-my-face option when I'm wearing a burqa. You know what I mean? There's no, like, oh, it's party time. I got this burqa. Let's let's rip this gauze off. Let's rip this gauze off and rock this party. It doesn't work like that. Uh, so those are, those are all variations. And the hijab is just uh, Arabic for head covering for women. And in many cases, that's just a, a scarf, a scarf that is sort of similar to uh, what you'd see in even some Christian Orthodox Eastern European countries referred to as a um, I, I don't think it's officially called a babushka, which I think means grandmother in Polish. Um, but that's kind of the, the vibe. You get what I'm saying? A peasant headscarf uh, in many countries that are non-Muslim sort of looks a little bit like a, a hijab or has a similar vibe to it. OK. So you, you get into the, the various levels in this. I mean, first of all, I'm always fascinated to see the people that are willing to just just immediately and reflexively defend uh, someone's right to dress like a beekeeper. And then you say, well, what, what about walking around dressed as, as a Klansman? And they'd say, oh, that's a hate crime. OK, so you can't walk around and cover your face and dress as a member of the Ku Klux Klan. Um, that's terrible. But you can walk around wearing what exactly? I mean, is a, is a burqa supposed to be a symbol of tolerance and, and willingness to integrate and assimilation? I mean, does anybody really believe that? I, I don't think so. I think we're all quite aware of the fact that the burqa is a very potent symbol of um, I'm not going to, uh, I, I am unwilling to make the very basic uh, accommodations and uh, choices necessary to integrate into a liberal Western society. Right. It's, it's quite clearly, at least to me, quite clearly uh, intended to separate and also to demean it. And then you get into the question about whether or not it even is something that's done voluntarily. And people will say, oh, well, we've done these polls of women. It's all done voluntarily. Well, I mean, there's voluntary and then there's when I get home, if I'm not wearing this, my you know husband might beat me 
or somebody on the street in my neighborhood may harass me or, or you know, in some cases throw acid on women. I mean, the stuff that happens is real. This is horrible. It's also considered a, a moral choice, a moral distinction for the women that do it. And therefore, those that don't do it, um, they are making an immoral choice. And, and remember, Islam, when it comes to these issues, doesn't make distinctions between believers and non-believers. Same is true with the drawing of the uh, drawing of Muhammad. Doesn't matter if you're a non-Muslim, you are uh, a you're guilty of blasphemy for jihadists, at least, and for Islamists, punishable by death if you mock the Prophet Muhammad. Doesn't matter if you're not a member of the faith. Does anyone really think that? those who are part of that section of Islam that think that women should dress in the full beekeeper burqa outfit, that those women walking around this country wearing blue jeans and and T-shirts are, that that's okay? This is a live and let live ideology? I mean, anyone who thinks that's deluding themselves, right? The mindset is that those women are dressed essentially as harlots, that they are uh, morally suspect and they are morally corrupted. And it's just a matter of time and having the numbers before the the burqa is a forced choice, right? It's it's this is this is where the, the debate always sort of, sort of breaks down for me. People don't seem to understand that those who wear a burqa don't want to just wear a burqa and be left alone. They want to wear a burqa now, but they're hoping in the future that everybody's got to wear a burqa. And anyone who has an honest conversation with somebody who wears one all the time, uh, that's the answer you're going to get. If they're having an honest conversation, maybe not. Maybe there's some other stuff going on there. Uh, I also have to note that you're seeing some of the pushback on this to be that there's not that there are not that many women in Germany that wear a full burqa. Uh, isn't it fascinating? You know, the left in this country will pick obscure issues or issues, I should say, that uh, impact very few people. Uh, the usage, transgender student usage of bathrooms is a perfect example of this, or uh, evangelical cake makers, another example of this, right? And they'll find this, and they realize that there's a symbolism to the issue, and they will just blow it up. It's a national news story. Obama weighs in. The White House is involved. Federal law, wall-to-wall coverage. Um, but doesn't matter to them that this is something that affects a very small slice of the population. I mean, h- how many transgendered students are really being denied proper bathroom usage in their eyes or you know, whatever. I mean, what are the numbers we're really talking about here? And the number is quite small. I don't even know what it is. I just know it's small. So when people say they, there's no official number of how many women in Germany wear a burqa, but they say it's quite small, well, that doesn't really matter, right? Because it's about symbolism here. Merkel, of course, is, is playing politics with this. She's a politician. That's not surprising. She's running for her fourth time as as chancellor of Germany and realizes that this is a way to perhaps set things right with at least some who are slightly more conservative or slightly more traditional uh, in their view of what Germany is and what Germany should support. So this is just this is I mean, I think it is pandering for Merkel. And it's a it's a my understanding is a reversal of her previous position on this. Um but Europe is having these discussions and America is having these discussions. And this notion that there's a sweeping populism and a nationalism, I think of the cover of The Economist was sort of the new nationalism. And there's they've got these different figures from around the world. Uh, it, isn't it fascinating that a return to the way things were, meaning nation states that have a particular culture, that have borders, that have 
uh, a a political outlook that is specific to those who live within within its borders, and um, that a return to that is considered to be so strange. When I mean, how long have we really been living in this uh, really leftist collectivist delusion that the world is sort of all becoming one country? And the best thing would be if we're all under one government. And the best thing would be if everything was sort of multilateral and done by international consensus. And you know, and that's really the aberration. This is what I find so fascinating about this this moment in time, um, that the United States should subordinate, uh, should subordinate some of its interest to the, the will of international bodies, whether it's the U.N. or the International Criminal Court or any number of things. And these are very new ideas that have been wholeheartedly embraced by, when we say the elites, we can specify who we're talking about. Uh, Political leadership, the super wealthy, not the well-off, the super wealthy, and those who shape opinion and, as we see increasingly, also become politicians, right, the media. Uh, They have overwhelmingly bought into this idea that everybody is, everyone wants the same things, and everyone should get the same things. And the only way that's going to happen is if people like them, meaning the elites, are in charge. Uh, and their view of governance, their view of governance, their view of, data, of day-to-day life uh, is deeply influenced by this. It's true of the Democratic Party in this country, the sort of Pelosi's and Clinton's and Obama's and Schumer's. And, and it's true in the European context as well. And I know that we're, I'm painting with a really broad brush here, but we're talking about the globe. We're talking about the world. We're talking about the Western world. So it's going to be a little broad. There is a trend that's happening here, and it's interesting to me because the same way that the Democrats refuse to see what happened in the last election for what it really was, uh, European leadership is beginning, I think, to wake up to the irritation of their populations at many of these uh, many of these policies and the sort of lack of um, identity that people crave from their country. People want to have an identity that is a national set of identity. Look, the communists ran into this problem. Uh, because for a long time that they were pushing this idea of the sort of you know the international and there is be this workers paradise, but as much as people maybe liked this notion of uh, workers of the world uniting in concept, people also wanted to maintain some sense of you know, they wanted to be a German communist, they wanted to be a French communist, they wanted to be an American communist. I mean, they liked that sense of identity. There was something more than just the baseline political ideology, there, were, there was a, a desire to belong, to have a sort of almost tribal sense of belonging. And that there's something of a return to that now is a return to the way things have been for a very long time. Uh, when you start to look at the cosmopolitanist, uh, yeah, dare I say it, globalist view of how government should operate, this has only been around for a few decades and it is an untried experiment. And no one's saying that it's all being thrown out and abandoned and we're going to sort of return to some state of anarchy where it's uh, uh, Habesian, you know, every state against every state. And no, but people like to live in countries that they feel like they identify with and that they have an identity in. And that identity should be protected and that identity should mean something. And the polity should try to reproduce certain norms and certain values, whether it's Dutch or you know, French or German or American or whatever. And there's this revulsion from the elites as a result of this. Like this is some sort of huge surprise to them. 
And I just think it's interesting to ask the question, why is this surprising? The alternative, actually, that that would go smoothly and everything would work out just fine. That would be the surprise. All right, we'll hit a break. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to The Buck Sexton Show only on the Blaze Radio Network. It's pretty amazing that uh, Donald Trump can uh, create a major item in the news cycle with his Twitter account. You know, as I sit around sometimes and I realize I can do a lot of uh, prep for the show. I mean, I you know I've got a, what is an iPhone six? I mean, it's like a tiny TV in my pocket. I mean, all of us can do so much, and we carry this around with us. And and I wonder sometimes, you know, we I don't think we take enough of the. Uh, the drawbacks into consideration with a lot of this. I think sometimes we find ourselves just being like, oh, it's so convenient. Yeah, but there's also no escape. But Trump tweeted out uh, that Boeing is building a brand new 747 Air Force One for future presidents, but costs are out of control. More than $4 billion. Cancel the order. That was like this morning. He just decided to uh, let that rip. Um, and I'm sitting here and I'm like, okay, uh, where did that come from? And it's not something that Trump had ever mentioned before. Uh, I don't, I don't know where that, what that really is, but it, it turns into a major, a major news item. Um, and you've got Donald Trump able to go outside of the sort of established channels. I mean, just with his Twitter account, I feel like Donald Trump is responsible probably for a spike in Twitter stock just because he single-handedly has turned it into the preferred mass communication tool of the next president of the United States. It's really remarkable when you think about it that way. Uh, but here he is. He, he creates a, a big discussion now over the future of Air Force One and how it should be built and who should build it and what the cost should be and everything else that's going on. So I'm, I find this very interesting uh, anyway that he can do this. Um, I'll get into this maybe a bit more in the second hour. We're going to talk a bit about the nuclear option in the Senate and some other very interesting stuff. 888-900-3393 team. We'll be right back. The Buck Sexton Show. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. Spreading freedom across the nation. This is the Buck Sexton Show. All right, team, welcome back. Hour two is upon us, which is always fun, and we are joined by the one and only, the wonderful Kim Strassel. She's the author of the Intimidation Game: How the Left Is Silencing Free Speech. You can go check it out on Amazon.com right now. Actually, wait until after the interview, but then you should go buy it. She's a columnist for the Wall Street Journal. Her latest there. Democrats send their regrets. Kim, great to have you. Hi, it's so great to be here again, Buck. So Democrats send their regrets on what, Kim? I assume the list is long, but you get into some specifics and some details here. I think they send their regrets on pretty much everything. 
They spent, as you well know, eight years deciding that they were going to break all the rules in Washington, do things the way they wanted to do them. But now it turns out that when you operate Washington that way, the other side gets to build off your legacy. So one of their biggest regrets, for instance, was Harry Reid's decision in 2013 to blow up the filibuster for most presidential nominees. And that is why we see this parade of reformers coming out of the Trump transition team, because they no longer have to worry about getting 60 votes to get their nominees confirmed. And it's really allowed them to blow out the the vote on on thinking big and big names. What was the thinking I know that you can't know, I can't know, because you got to get in the heads of the Democrats here. But Which is hard. Which is hard. But it was said at the time, hey, guys, hey, Democrats, if you get rid of this filibuster, you know, just wait till the shoe's on the other foot. Just wait until uh, – did they assume that they would be in power forever, do you think, or that they could sort of browbeat Republicans via some assistance from much of the media into not doing to them as they had done unto others? I just – I I do think that people looking at them like, yeah, dudes, this is how it's going to be now. And we told you this is how it would be if you did this. Two things. I do believe that they had bought this line that they were on the verge of electoral dominance. You know, if you listen to any of these Democratic uh, you know, people doing demography for them. They have been saying for years and years, we all know this. I remember back when Obama was elected in 2008, guys like Rui Teixeira saying, yeah, you know, we are about to, given the demographics of Hispanic population and other minority growth and the, the fall off and white voters, that we will simply run this country by virtue of people having babies. And I really believe that a lot of Democrats thought that that was true. I do believe they also think, yes, that they would be able to exert enough pressure if they ever lost power to, to force Republicans to do it differently. Also, Oh, wait, did we lose Kim? Sorry, Kim. What did you say? I think it cut out there for a second. Oh, no, we lost Kim Strassel. No. So sad. We're trying to get her back in a second. It's a Soros conspiracy. Obviously, we need to come up with somebody else. Soros doesn't scare people anymore. I need to come up with a new a new uh, boogeyman for whenever we have a tech issue here. You guys need to help me out with this. Is it the Russian? Did the Russians hack us? But the Russians like the Russians like me No, because of commie bear. He's like my special Russia liaison. There's no problems. So I don't think the Russians would hack me. Putin and I, let's be honest. There we go. That's right. Let it rip in the background there for a second. Uh, Putin and I would get along famously, I'm sure, for two or three minutes although his english isn't isn't great from what i understand um anyway so wait we got kim strassel back hey kim strassel we drop you for a second you were you were saying the federal communications division so <laughs> wait what, what happened where are we let, let, let's go back because we dropped we, we had a drop call there for a second so you were telling us about how yeah, why democrats thought they could get yes away with why it. they thought they could get away with this and how now we look at them with zero sympathy because they were told this would happen, and it is yeah, now happening. And I think, I think also they sometimes can't see beyond their immediate desires. And look, they had some nominees they wanted to have confirmed. They had, well, look what the agenda was at the time, Buck. They wanted to pack the federal courts. In particular, they wanted to pack the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. And they didn't want to have to bother with the Republican filibuster. They figured they would pack that court, wait until Supreme Court justice left, and then pack that one as well, and they would run the judiciary for the next 50 years. And now I suppose they're just clinging to the hope that they can 
Supreme Court Supreme Court nominees, there the filibuster is sacred, right? <laughs> they, well, that's, and that's another thing that they regret. If you look back, it was Tim Kaine, our vice presidential candidate with Hillary Clinton, who warned only a couple of months ago when everyone was convinced that Hillary Clinton was going to win, he, he warned everyone in the Senate, the Republicans in the Senate, he said, you know, if you guys are going to filibuster a Hillary Clinton Supreme Court nominee, we're not going to let you get away with it. It was a, a threat that they would get rid of the filibuster for Supreme Court nominees as well. Now you see them regretting that, and Chuck Schumer, the new Democratic Senate leader, saying, oh, no, the filibuster for Supreme Court nominees is inviolate. You can't touch that. Yeah, I mean, one of the the most uh, enduring legacies of the Obama administration will be the packing of the federal judiciary with nominees that were able to sail through because the Democrats wanted them to. But now that shows that they've opened the door to Republicans putting, oh, my gosh, Ben Carson in as HUD as HUD secretary. I mean, the, the people they're going to put into some of these positions are obviously really upsetting the left. I, I do think there would be some filibusters in place for some of Trump's nominees. Oh, absolutely. I, I read with such glee today the New York Times article running through with a whole list of cabinet members, and each paragraph seemed to get increasingly more sad and, and dispirited because this is their worst nightmare in terms of a team of people that, by the way, I think are not beholden to anyone. That if you look, one thing that I find really interesting about these cabinet picks is that few of them need to be taking these jobs. They are kind of independent in their own right. They, a lot of them haven't been in public service before. Uh, they know a great deal about the things on which they work and speak, and they've been in the trenches and fought some of these battles. So this is going to be, this is a serious team. Now, uh, Kim, back in my government service days, uh, I had some friends who had interactions, colleagues and friends who had interactions with Nancy Pelosi, including some uh, some Democrats and people who would go on to sort of serve on the more political side of, of the federal government. And I, I remember very pointedly a couple of times being told that they were shocked at how uh, in, in, indifferent to knowledge she was would be a nice way to put it. Uh, and yet here we are. Uh, the Democrats have had the chance to pick somebody else for leadership, and they're sticking with the Pelosi train. What is it about Nancy Pelosi the Democrats can't live without? It's extraordinary. Part of this is that Nancy Pelosi, through her failures, has solidified her own position. And what I mean by that is that when she first came to become Speaker in 2006, it was over one of the most big-tent Democratic parties ever. They have more than 250 members, I believe, from pretty much every state, all kinds of walks of life, a lot of different diversity, blue dog Democrats, Northeast liberals, coal mining representatives, all kinds of things. Now, as there has been backlash against the Obama and Pelosi and Reid liberal agenda, a lot of those middle-of-the-roads and centrist Democrats obviously got thrown out. And these days, and I find this number astonishing, one-third of all House Democrats hail from just three states, California, New York, and Massachusetts. And when you weed out any opposing voices in your caucus and all that's left are the true believers, yes, you're going to reelect Nancy Pelosi again. By the way, you use the term in your piece "alt left" with uh, Senator uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren. That was the first. Somebody brought that up on the show yesterday. It was the first time I had seen that. Uh, is that is that catching on, or is, is that just is that just Kim Strassel doing her thing here? Yeah, I think it was just 
Kim doing her own thing. But there is a different term catching on, which I like even more, and I wish I'd have heard it because I did used that for the column instead, which is control left, like control key. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's that I, I like that one too. Um, it, we'd but have but to there ha- is look the, the kind of wacky wing of the Democratic Party, the, this pr- super progressive wing, Elizabeth Warren really pushed her party into taking a lot of the positions that have resulted in their electoral defeats. And it was encouraging this last week. The House of Representatives was working on a bill put forward by Republicans, a medical innovation bill. It was pretty good stuff. And Nancy Pelosi, I mean, sorry, Elizabeth Warren, the senator of Massachusetts, hated it. She made several floor speeches against it, went out on the road to complain about it, said it was a giveaway to big pharma, said it made her gag. Um, And in the end, every single one of the Democrats in the House from her home state of Massachusetts voted for it anyway. So I do think that there are some people who are realizing this is incredibly progressive uh, left-wing rhetoric, uh, populist rhetoric uh, about the winners and the losers and the, the wealthy and the not wealthy is not necessarily uh, always going to, to win you things out with the public. Whose Democratic Party is it right now? I mean, I, I, it's okay, it's still Obama's, but in 2017, once Obama leaves the White House, who is the, who's the leader, the, the de facto leader of the modern Democratic Party, or the, or the current Democratic Party, I should say? This is a secondary tragedy, I think, of what the Democrats have done to their party. It's not only did they pick Hillary Clinton, which, who was a, a very bad choice to be their nominee, but in doing so, refused to make way for a new generation of leaders. Now, that was partly their own fault. No one stepped up really to challenge her other than you know Martin O'Malley and Bernie Sanders. But they do have a few people out there. Uh, you know, the Cuomo's of the world, uh, the Chris Van Hollens of the world. Uh, but they are not being heard because they did just reelect Nancy Pelosi. They've uh, elected Chuck Schumer in the Senate. He's an older member of the party. The ranks of all the senior ranking positions in the House are filled by Democrats who were elected to the House before I was even born, likely you as well, too. So it's a very older party, and they're not willingly handing over power. So we don't know who the party belongs to at the moment. And on the other side of the aisle, I just wanted to ask for your overall reactions, assessments. Uh, what do you think of the of the Trump cabinet as it's it's still being formed, but we've got some decisions that have been made. How are you how are you viewing all this? Overall, I think it's incredibly exciting, especially in those kind of workman positions, uh, the education department, health and human services department, uh, HUD, uh, Ben Carson, Betsy DeVos at education, Tom Price. These are the places where the worst regulations tend to come out and where the most work is set to be done in terms of root and branch overhaul of bad government policies. And these are people who really have the, the smarts and the backbone to do it. So I'm very excited about that. Uh, I think so far on the national security team, it's very encouraging, especially the recent naming of General Mattis. You probably have even better views on that than I do. Um, My one little bit of worry is still the economic team, mostly because there's a lot of tension there, I think, between protectionist Trump and free market Trump, and I'm not really sure which of those wins. Yeah, it seems like some of his advisors, I've had some of them on the show, uh, they say, well, you know, I don't agree with Donald on that. <laughs> There's, that's where all of a sudden you'll hear people who have been very close to the Trump campaign say, look, I, 
I just can't go along with a thirty a thirty five percent tariff on goods on certain companies, for example. Uh, how do you? Is, uh, I guess that that's just a tension that will be resolved one way or another in the months ahead. It will. What worries me is I think you know Donald Trump likes to do things that are very popular with the public, and his recent mau mowing of carrier corporation got was very well received. Now you see him doing it with Rexnord. But you know this, and I know this, the best way to really get companies to stay in the United States or build in the United States in the first place is to overhaul all the policies that make the United States a place you don't want to be, whether it's labor policy or tax policy or health care policy. And Donald Trump has so much more ability and levers at his command to do really important economic overhaul from that right rather than chasing thousands of different companies around and beating them up and trying to get them to stay in an uneconomic situation. Kim Strassel is author of The Intimidation Game, How the Left is Silencing Free Speech, and a columnist at The Wall Street Journal. Kim, always great to have you. Thank you so much for making the time today. Thanks, Buck. Team, we'll go into a break. We'll be right back. The Buck Sexton Show. Discover more at theblaze.com slash radio. The Blaze Radio Network. Uh, someone's uh, going to have to maybe explain this one to me. So this is from the New York Times. And by the way, a caller brought this up yesterday, and uh, I just I didn't know uh, anything specifically about this meeting. And uh, as I'm seeing it here, huh, it's the New York Times. Trump meets with Al Gore on climate change while House GOP rebuffs tariff plan. Okay. Um, interesting. Well, we'll get to the tariff side of this maybe later. Um, but Trump meeting with Al Gore on climate change. Here's what the, how the piece begins. Al Gore thought he would be bending the ear of the of the advisor Mr. Trump trusts most, his daughter Ivanka. Instead, the man bearing the inconvenient truth went straight to the source, the president-elect himself. Uh, I had a lengthy and very productive session with the president-elect. Mr. Gore, the former vice president, told reporters at Trump Tower. It was a sincere search for areas of common ground. I had a meeting beforehand with Ivanka Trump. The bulk of the time was with the president-elect, Donald Trump. I found it an extremely interesting conversation and to be continued. Hundreds of scientists are also telling Mr. Trump in a new letter that climate change is real and needs to be addressed. Why is Trump... Meeting with Al Gore. Al Gore, whom is a just a bloviating uh, epic fraud. And Al Gore's meeting with Donald Trump. I, I, I don't get this. I don't understand this move. You know, sometimes and look, sometimes Trump does things. And I know a lot of people say he's doing the 4D chess thing or what's the 4D chess here? Why is it that Al Gore would be meeting with Donald Trump and Ivanka as well meeting with Al Gore to talk about climate change? I also say, you know, this notion that it's just something that needs to be addressed 
and and you can sort of check a box that just addresses it uh, is one of the the great fallacies in all domestic policy discussions that happens in this country on a regular basis. Climate change is a wildly complicated issue to address if you chose to address it. Uh, there would be tremendous trade-offs, a lot of back and forth, a lot of cost-benefit analysis would have to be done. And that's if you actually thought that the planet was increasingly you know, in, in jeopardy from this whole thing that I don't believe. And I don't actually want to see the planet destroyed as much as I know I'm, I'm on the right. I'm a conservative, so I must just want future generations to like live in misery and, and pain. And I, I don't know where they get this idea. I don't know why this is able to continue on as it is. Um, but addressing climate, it's, you know, there's sort of two things. One, do you believe in climate change? You check a box, yes or no. And if you check the box, no, well, then you're some sort of a, uh, you know, a cretin, an imbecile, uh, you're, you're anti-science, you know, you're some sort of a freak show. And even then beyond that, well, you know, do you want to address climate change? What is What does that even mean? You're going to sign on to some pact that will try to reduce our level of, oh, what about all the countries in the rest of the world? Well, you know, we're going to have a framework for them too. Is it a framework where they can both uh, self-grade and set their own, they can set their own targets and then set their own grades for meeting those targets. Um, is that what's really going on? Is that the, is that the way that we're going to solve this problem? Uh, how many industries should be destroyed along the way? How expensive should your electricity get as well as the electricity that is needed to refrigerate your food as well as all the other uh, things that climate change effects in the economy that affect you, that affect your pocketbook, that affect prosperity. I mean, I always think it's a useful, just just think about what this country looks like without fossil fuels tomorrow. And I think that starts to put into perspective how crazy this idea is um, that one, oil is bad, gas is bad, these are bad things, and they're destroying the planet. And two, that there's some simple fix to all of this. Even if you think that there's a problem, uh, I I don't know why Trump is meeting with Al Gore. I'm sure people could come up with some explanation, but honestly, if somebody put me on the spot right now, which I guess I am because I'm on a live radio show, maybe Trump was just curious. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. This is the Buck Sexton Show. We're joined now by John Fund. He's a columnist for National Review. John, great to have you. Pleasure. Thank you, Buck. So you have a piece up in the Wall Street Journal, John, that you co-author with Hans von Spakovsky, another uh, guest here that we have in the Freedom Hut as, as often as we can. Uh, do illegal votes decide elections? Uh, Trump started this furor with his tweet about millions of illegals voting. Everyone said, oh, that's ridiculous. Do illegals vote? Yes, of course they do. Uh, I think Donald Trump was a little premature in putting a number to it because the worst part of our election system, Buck, is we don't know how much chicanery, fraud, and incompetence there is in our election system. 
but we have lots of clues, which I'm happy to go into with you, including today's clue that one half of Detroit, Michigan's precincts can't be recounted because there was so much sloppiness involved in casting the votes. I'm not saying it's fraud, but I'm saying it's a lot of incompetence there, and it's been going on there for 20, 30 years. And that clearly gets people's attention, Michigan being one of the key states that Donald Trump had to win to defeat Hillary Clinton, and the margin was small. It was a kind of margin where sloppy vote tallying could have some uh, some some impact but does that mean that jill stein is right to demand a recount john well look i believe if people want to pay for a recount and it's not of the taxpayer's dime they should have a recount however she waited three weeks for her request which clearly makes it a political ploy because she didn't have any evidence to present uh and what happened of course is with the election uh, just a few days ago, the, the recount, I'm sorry, there's just a, pl- a plane going by. It happens. It's okay. I'm, I'm here in New York City. We hear all the fire trucks and ambulances that pass by the Freedom Hut day in and day out, John, so no worries. What, what happens is uh, the Electoral College meeting on December 19th, Jill Stein's intent was obviously to carry the recount into that period so that the electors couldn't meet and that Trump's victory would somehow be tainted. So it was clearly a political ploy. But now, can you make the case for me? I mean, you're, you, you know this stuff backwards and forwards. John, you've been studying this for a long time and writing on it for a long time. What is the most compelling case that there is not just, you know, I, th- I think I could even get MSNBC hosts to admit that a couple of illegals probably voted in the last election and they shouldn't have. And it was illegal for them to vote. And I'm talking about, you know, illegal aliens voting. Uh, but what's the most pro- what's the most potent case you can make or what evidence can you point to that we're not talking about three or four here? We're talking about numbers that could actually make a difference in a state like Michigan, where the margin was very small. There was an academic study that was conducted in 2014, which looked at 30,000 people who had voted and it asked them, are you a non-citizen? And if you're a non-citizen, are you registered? And if you're registered, did you vote? And they found that in the 2008 presidential election, 15% of non-citizens said they were registered to vote, and 6% of all non-citizens voted in that election. If that were the case, we're talking about the Senate race in Minnesota being flipped, and that was the famous Al Franken race that gave Democrats 60 filibuster-proof seats in the Senate and gave us Obamacare because the Republicans couldn't mount a filibuster against it. It also probably flipped a couple states over to Barack Obama. Now, when you, whenever this issue comes up, there'll be like a, 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 a splainer piece on Vox.com or on the HuffPost or whatever, and they'll, they'll pull all the prosecutions for voter fraud that have happened, and it, it, there aren't that many. There are some, which, of course, then also means they can't claim there are none, which is somehow often said even still on TV by pundits with big platforms. But anyway, uh, they'll look at them and they'll say, well, see, look, look at how many prosecutions there have been for voter fraud. Uh, how, do, how do you respond to that, John, that there's so few prosecutions? Is it just because well, we're not fuck. looking for it? Well, that's part of it. If you don't look for something, you're not going to find it. And, of course, in a secret ballot, if you saw somebody show up at a polling place who says they're dead or who's otherwise ineligible and they're not checked with an ID or something like that, they throw their ballot in with everybody else's. It can never be pulled out and examined. But the real answer is the number you're hearing is a federal prosecutions by the Justice Department. Well, you know, Buck, that most voting is, all voting is done at the state and local level. That's who controls the vote. So most of the prosecutions, 95% of them, are done at the state and local level. They don't show up in the statistics that you hear. The only ones the feds do are things that cross state lines or are giant conspiracies. 
Is it fair to say that there have been elections, at least at the state level or higher, in the last 50 years that uh, have turned because of illegal votes or or turned because of, uh, you know, illegal activity around voting? It's the numbers by this academic study at Old Dominion and George Mason, which has, I think, been ratified by a recent November 2016 study just last month by a group called America's Coalition. If that's accurate, every close election in the country could have turned on illegal voting. Every single one of them. Every single one of them. I mean, that's astonishing. We're, we're always told that, you know, why would illegals vote? There's no reason for them to vote. They don't need to break the law. There's well, no purpose. In- first of all. Many of them are misled. Many of them are told if you're applying for citizenship here, you can register to vote. It's just a procedure. And then they're told you can vote because you're in the line to become a citizen. So some of them are misled. Some of them are encouraged and paid to go vote. In Orange County, California, it used to be five, ten, fifteen dollars. Here, sign up, register to vote and go and vote. And, of course, California makes it illegal to ask people for ID at the polls. So here you have this problem in California. You can get a driver's license if you're an illegal alien. You don't need an ID to vote, and your driver's license can get you other documents that allow you to not only vote, but register to vote others and collect ballots. So if the honor system doesn't work, which we're kind of on an honor system here when it comes to all this, how hard would it be to shore up the voting system so that this kind of fraud wouldn't happen? Well, there are two things that the Obama administration has done to discourage integrity of elections. The first is the states have asked the Department of Homeland Security over and over again, Buck, please give us your list of legal non-citizens, legal non-citizens. We can compare them with our voter registration rules and see if their people are voting. We have a clue that this is happening because often people will, will sign up to register to vote. Then they'll get a jury notice and they'll write back saying, I, I can't serve in your jury because I'm a non-citizen. Non-citizen. So this is a this is a real problem. Trump shouldn't have come out with the numbers. But this notion that the media peddles, John, this is the last one I'll have for you because I know you got to run uh, this idea. The media puts out there that there's no illegal voting and the, and that it is preposterous to even think that it could turn an election. You don't buy that at all. Well, the other thing the Obama administration has done is it four states have passed laws, Arizona, Alabama, Georgia, Kansas, that say if you want to register to vote, you have to prove you're a citizen. The Obama administration has taken them to court. It has sued them. It has tried to block them in every way possible. I hope that the incoming Trump Justice Department turns that around and says, look, if a state wants to demand citizenship proof to register to vote, that is a reasonable attempt to police the election and make sure we don't have. Remember, we have something like 30 to 40 million non-citizens in this country, most of them legal, but many of them illegal. This would help prevent that large group of people from being encouraged to cast an illegal ballot. And you know what they say, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Absolutely. John Fund is a columnist for National Review, and you can also read his latest piece in the Wall Street Journal, Do Illegal Votes Decide Elections? John, great to have you. Hope you make your flight. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, team 888-900-3393 on the phones. Also, Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. I'm a little behind in the Facebook messages. Uh, I'm going to get through as many of them as I can today and tonight. Um, so don't think that I've forgotten or uh, I'm not reading them. I am. And uh, with that little interlude, we'll be back in a few minutes. Buck Sexton. Dispensing the truth. On the Blaze Radio Network. 
You're listening to The Buck Sexton Show. Team, if you've never thought about a silencer for your firearm, I ask that you give it some thought. And the best way to do that is to go check out all the offerings and the process and the assistance, the help that you can get from silencershop.com. They uh, have a friendly, knowledgeable staff. They're always available to help or answer any of your questions. And when you purchase a silencer from silencershop.com, you simply pick it up at a local dealer with no transfer fees and no shipping. When shooting with a silencer, shooting becomes a more social sport because it's easier to communicate and you can enjoy the environment around you more. Who needs all that racket, all that loud noise? Every time you depress the trigger, you don't need to feel like your eardrums are getting blown out. So a silencer makes sure that that does not happen. It makes it a lot easier for you to enjoy what's going on around, and uh, I would recommend you check it out. So silencershop.com is the place to go. Again, check out, out all the best offerings and the best prices and service on silencershop.com. Dot com Help make the world a quieter place, which, as I'm here in New York City, and it's just an endless parade of dump trucks and construction vehicles and ambulances and fire trucks and other loud noise, making the world a quieter place does sound like a fantastic idea, I have to tell you. I, I, I will, my authoritarian impulse kicks in when it comes to excessive noise, um, and, and I, I really do wish that there was a way to, for example, punish people that think that when they have to wait two seconds behind somebody at a red light or whatever, they should just lean on the horn for, for about 15 seconds. Uh, excessive noise is the bane of my existence. It's really something that bothers me more than a lot. And, and I understand that I probably become an authoritarian when it, when it uh, comes to noise and noise issues. And living in New York City and having that as a problem is something that it's not easy to deal with. There's actually some kind of a, a condition, I think, where some noises set people off in an irrational way. And I, I do hate whistling that much. I, I, I got to look up what it is again. But there's it like triggers something in the brain where people just completely like it hits like a, a rage button. Obviously, I control myself and don't say anything if somebody starts whistling. But whistling uh, drives me insane. I absolutely hate it. Um, but also loud construction noise, which is seemingly inescapable in New York City. The buildings here are large and beautiful and, and in many cases, uh, you know, quite architecturally marvelous. And yet everyone's always gutting them, renovating them, doing all this stuff to them. Uh, drives me insane. Drives me. Sorry, this is, I'm turning this into now a, a New York City therapy session. Uh, let me move on to answer perhaps a question that was posed by me earlier in the show, and that is Biden's claim that he's going to run. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I got ahead of myself there. Who is going to be the de facto head of the Democratic Party once Obama is no longer in the White House? I, I don't think Obama is going to go back and try to run for Senate somewhere or something. I think he's going to enjoy his status as the most uh, the most revered ex-president, uh, I mean, certainly of our li- of my lifetime, and and probably for several lifetimes, uh, in terms of the way the media treats him and and the amount of uh, clout and exposure and the sort of magnification of his voice that will occur post presidency, um, it, it seems to me very likely that Obama is going to have a tremendous amount of influence on the direction and tone and everything else of the. Uh, Democratic Party, even after he leaves office. But who's going to be the the figurehead that you know can run for office? I mean, who's going to be the person that takes it all the way to the White House in 2020 against Trump? Biden, 
has already said it's been 27 days since Donald Trump was elected the 45th president. And Joe Biden has said that he's going to run. Uh, he's going to run in 2020. So he, I'm going to run in 2020, told, Biden told a group of reporters at the Capitol on Monday. So uh, what the hell, man? Yeah, I am. Biden said, yeah, I am. We're going to run again. Uh, yeah, Joe Biden is going to run. Biden will would turn 78 after the 2020 election. Um, I don't look. Maybe he's just saying this because why not? Because as he says, like, so uh, what the hell, man? But it seems to me unlikely that the Democratic Party is going to be able to rally around Joe Biden. I mean, he's he's a good number two man for the Democrats, uh, I guess. Didn't really leave much of a mark on the Obama administration. I, I think Biden will be most remembered for his eight years uh, serving as vice president to Obama for the sort of gaffes and, and that sort of stuff. I, I don't really know that there's much that I know if we had a Biden spokesperson on right now, that would say, oh, his imprint on foreign policy it's we couldn't you know we couldn't do without it it's been amazing it's been so essential to all of us but it's i don't think we i don't think we buy that i don't think people are going to sign on for that one so you know we'll see i I don't think it's going to be biden people have said cory booker i mean now you're at least kind of in the wheelhouse because you know guys charismatic uh to a degree um you know obviously very uh you know Comfortable on camera, well-spoken, all that sort of stuff, you know, which, as we know, is this is running for president is really now just a media war. Um, the, the policy gets put in in a distant second, I think, to how the person sounds, looks, comes across um, this president. I mean, this election, more than a lot of others, I think, showed that. Yeah, Trump's message was it was certainly potent and tapped into something that was going on in this country. But don't underestimate how unlikable Hillary really was. Uh, don't underestimate how, you know, the media always sort of knew you could tell that they needed to sort of constantly coddle and protect her image because Hillary out there on the stump and talking to people and kissing babies and, you know, at Chipotle. Wasn't she at Chipotle and no one saw her that time? I think that's where she was. Uh, whatever she's doing, that is uh, not something that wins over large numbers of voters for her. She's not somebody that can rely on that sort of stuff to uh, push her push her through. So um, that's my thought on Biden running in 2020. I don't think it's going to happen. But it is interesting the Democratic Party is currently in search of someone who would need to be the standard bearer. I mean, the Democratic Party really needs someone to rally around, and they don't have anybody. It's not going to be Pelosi. It's not going to be Chuck Schumer. Uh, you look at their sort of young... Th- Elizabeth Warren? Really? I don't think so. Um, Bernie Sanders? I mean, they, I don't think they go full socialist. So we'll have to see what they come up with. But right now, it's kind of fun watching them in a little bit of disarray. You're listening to Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. Spreading freedom across the nation. This 
is The Buck Sexton Show. Team Buck, welcome back to the Freedom Hut. We are joined by our friend Rebecca Heinrichs. She is a fellow at the Hudson Institute, expert on foreign policy and national defense matters. Rebecca, great to have you. Thanks so much, Buck. Happy to be here. Uh, Hudson.org. The piece is up now. If you want to check it out, we'll post it on Facebook. President-elect Trump is poised to reset, upending Obama's apology tour. Rebecca, how is President Trump poised to reset? <laughs> well, um, you know, I wrote this piece uh, uh, right before he announced um, his pick for Secretary of Defense, uh, General Mad Dog Mattis, which I think is a perfect um, person to, to lead the Pentagon. And I think that, that he will um, absolutely carry out some of the things that I mentioned in my piece. Um, some of which were number one, briefly, um, I think, you know, president, uh, president Trump is going to return to an unapologetic defense of American superiority. The sort of equivocating going back and forth of whether or not the United States is actually morally superior to other nations. And then of course, whether or not we should have a military that, that's better and stronger in every single military domain. And that's just not going to be a question. He's going to be unapologetic about that. And so I think that means we're going to rebuild our military. Um, And number two, he's going to engage with allies. He's going to do that. I recommend that he do that first before he engages with adversaries. He has already begun to do that with his phone call with the Taiwanese, which I thought was excellent and forward-leaning. And then number three, Again, we're going to have this, when we negotiate treaties, we're going to do it from a position of strength. None of this sort of, hey, what can we get out of you Iranians? You tell us exactly what you want and and show us where to sign on the dotted line. That's not going to happen. Um, What did you think of the uh, the Taiwan phone call, by the way? We talked to Gordon Chang about it yesterday, but I wanted your take. Yeah, you know, I thought it was great, Buck. You know, first of all, it's just a phone call. It was a phone call. They, um, the leader of, the, of Taiwan and, and President-elect Trump exclaimed, it just exchanged pleasantries, congratulations. This is a democratic, um, a dem- uh, you know, it's a, it's a democratically elected president of Taiwan. I know if you use the term president, you're sort of acknowledging the sovereign um, nation of Taiwan. But I don't think President-elect Trump um, has gone that far. I think that he is simply recognizing that we do have a true partner in the Taiwanese. Um, and, you know, everybody's sort of outcry over this, I think, just shows that just how used to we've gotten to letting the Chinese determine how we how we act. Um, it's merely a phone call. It was nothing more than that, except I think that it does sort of signal that that the, that the United States government is going to be a friend of Taiwan. And that's a very good thing. Um, so I just didn't I didn't see the outcry um, as, as really warranted on that. point. I thought it was interesting because when some people were were trying to, I think, or, or the, the initial search for all of the, the parade of, of terribles that were, would be visited upon us by China if we continued to, I, I don't know, go down this path of recognizing a country that is a separate country. I know there's the one China policy thing, but it is a separate country. It operates as a separate country. And we've been selling a whole lot of really advanced military hardware to in recent years. Uh, but that China would do all these bad things. And when people started to look at, well, what could China do? I think that was the moment of recognition of Oh well, China's already doing a bunch of things that are pretty aggressive and bad, and we don't actually do anything in response. You know, China's exactly uh, cyber right. warfare and cyber theft. I mean, yeah, go ahead. Well, you know, just days days before, you know, everyone. Here's the other thing too. Everyone sort of, you know, I saw this just outcry on Twitter from some Republicans as well, some some never Trump Republicans that still sort of haven't gotten through all the stages of grief, I guess. But um, you know, kind of 
showing outrage that clearly this should this was something that the that President elect Trump didn't even understand what he was doing, that it was sloppy and careless and he must not understand our one China policy. But just days before he made this phone call or he accepted this phone call, whichever way it went, China actually flew nuclear capable aircraft around Taiwan. Um, which is incredibly provocative, incredibly destabilizing. And so it does seem to me that that, uh, President-elect Trump made this phone call or took this phone call with eyes wide open about what was happening with Taiwan and China. Um, So, yeah, I mean, the United States has essentially been just sort of letting China run the show and and sort of been being very, very nervous about upsetting China when China's already being aggressive and provocative. I I do think it's um, also interesting that that what's the the status quo – is that China can use North Korea as sort of like, uh, you know, a, a pit bull that it can rein in or sort of let loose more. And that's that's a leverage that it has against the against the world, really, and against the international community, against us. And yet we're sort of very tiptoey around the issue of Taiwan. Well, why is it that the Chinese can do all this provocative stuff and really keep North Korea uh, sustain it as as the hermit kingdom? Um, and when we look at Taiwan, we're so, we're sort of stuck in a policy that's that's really not sustainable. I think that's also something that the Trump phone call maybe raised in people's minds. This idea of of a one China, well, it's not one China if we're selling missiles that they're going to use to stop it from being one China to Taiwan. That's exactly right. And and you know we we've talked about this before about what the Chinese have been doing with North Korea. I mean, the Obama administration um, essentially has allowed the North Koreans to become um, a, a really significant nuclear power between their missile tests, their nuclear tests. Um, many folks in the military believe that North Korea does have the ability to actually hit the United States with a nuclear weapon on a missile. Um, and, and that is because China, um, in large part, has been has let the North Koreans do this. They've, they've weakened sanctions every time the United States tries to go to the U.S. Security Council. Um, and, and they've essentially just sort of allowed North Korea to, be, to become this nuclear power and to coerce and um, deter the United States from doing particular things in South Korea and Japan. Um, so it really is uh, hypocritical, inconsistent, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And again, you know, I think what we're going to see out of the Trump administration is that just looking across the globe and trying to actually see what is in the United States' interests, what is right, what is wrong, who are our true friends, who are our adversaries. And, and you know, let's go about this in the best way we can that makes sense for the American people. And we just haven't been doing that for years and years and years. So I'm not sure a, what um, the, the – there may be a, another sort of example of this that, that would spring to mind, but just on the spot here, I have to think to myself, so under Obama foreign policy rules, you know, talk to Castro, talk to Maduro, talk to Kim Jong-un, but you can't talk to the president of Taiwan. Is that, what, what other co- – <laughs> right. if, if they're in the OK column and Taiwan is not, who, who else is in the not OK column? You know, it is so bizarre. If you if you just kind of look and see um, what he has done, he's he sort of, you know, and, and all of our allies are more uncomfortable after eight years of, of the United States being, um, you know, having uh, Barack Obama in the White House. Um, the Iran deal has sort of upset the Middle East and the balance there. The Saudis are nervous. You know, all these people are really uncomfortable and nervous. Um, you have the Russians that are more emboldened and the North Koreans that are more emboldened. Um, and then you have, um, you know, our, our allies who are really nervous and, and um, you know, not in a safer position because of what the United States has been doing. So it really has been backwards. We've sort of been leaning forward and trying to talk to our adversaries and really telling our, our um, friends and allies to just 
um, sit tight and kind of eat it. So I think let's talk about the uh, the, very, the very coming together of the Trump national security team for a second. A lot of attention and and a lot of criticism and heat directed at General Flynn over the last few days. Uh, what what do you make of this? Yeah, you know, um, General Flynn, you know, and he's sort of going to be. Um, well, sort of at larger, speaking larger to what the what President-elect Trump is actually doing with his cabinet. He is picking individuals who have, um, they've been out really pushing the envelope, doing good things, um, some of them controversial things. And so you're going to have some of these characters who, you know, they're unconventional. Uh, General Flynn is one of them. General Flynn, um, but one of the things that made him very unpopular in the Obama administration is how out- outspoken he was about the dangers of militant Islamism and actually how you can actually look at problems within Islam and actually understand the enemy better that way. That was a very unpopular thing to do, obviously very politically incorrect, and it actually cost him his job as the head of the Defense Intelligence Agency. So, um, you know, you're, you're, you're going to have, you know, he, he's an interesting character, um, but he seems to understand the enemy much better than anybody else in the Pentagon or many other people in the Pentagon were um, you know, permitted to understand. And so I think he's a good choice for a national security advisor. Um, but, you know, not what the American people are used to. Are you, have you seen all the stuff about, about Pizzagate or whatever, though, and the tweets? I mean, what do you, I don't know if you got this deep yeah. into the weeds on this or not, but. No, you know, I followed it a little bit. This was his son. I know that, I know that Mike uh, Flynn Jr. was sort of tweeting about this, and now he's no longer advising on the transition team. Um, but I, I didn't follow very closely with uh, Mike Flynn Sr. on that. Yeah, no, we'll, we'll have to see. I mean, it's I, I think Mike Flynn Sr., as I understand it, the, the, the tweet in question that's gotten him in so much trouble has actually been misread by a lot of people. But then Mike Flynn Jr., who is kind of his chief of staff or something, has has done some weird stuff. So I, I, I just well, wish- he, I know that he was let go. I heard from the briefing from the transition team today that Mike Flynn Jr. has been let go of the transition team. So he's oh, no longer helping. Yeah. Hence, hence my he's done some weird stuff or, or not hence my, <laughs> but, you know, that, that that falls right in line with when I saw some of the, you know, there's there's the stuff that people are trying to pin on Flynn. And I'm like, no, nah, that you know, Flynn Sr. And I'm like, no, nah, that doesn't see. And then there's what his son did. I was like, ooh, OK, that's not great. Yeah, let's well, talk, let's go to the happy place, though, for a second. Tell me about how awesome General Mattis is. <laughs> this is what everyone, everyone who's like enthusiastic about the Trump transition wants to talk about Mattis, which I can totally understand. So General Mattis, you know, um, you might remember during during earlier on, um, during the primary, I had even thrown out, I had got, you know, suggested that General Mattis was a great pick if Republicans were still unhappy with their current candidates, that General Mattis would be a great one. Um, I think he is an excellent choice for President-elect Trump. He, you know, he led the U.S. Central Command, among other things, as a U.S. Marine. Um, it's really just amazing thing about General Mattis is not only is he able to clearly identify the enemy and devise plans to act, to go out and actually vanquish the enemy, something that you know the United States has sort of gotten we need about. Um, but he, you know, he has this. He, he's a reader. He's a reader. Um, he's he's a he's sort of a philosopher type. So he's a deep thinker, um, and he's a he, he's just one of these guys that other people love to follow, um, and our enemies sort of fear and our allies respect. And so he's all around just an excellent choice to lead the Pentagon. He really is. Rebecca Heinrichs is a fellow at the Hudson Institute. You can follow her on Twitter at RL Heinrichs. Rebecca, great to have you. Thanks for dropping by the hut. Thanks so much. 
uh, team. Phone lines open 888-900-3393. I sound kind of like the guy on Parks and Rec who's like, and now Barry Marbles, who's filling in for Susan von Philbaum, who is filling in for Morris von Dietzstown. And, you know, he goes through that whole thing. Who has gone on sabbatical to study the habits of flying squirrels. Uh, that guy. Is his name Barry Merbles or something like that? I think that's his name. And and then there's Crazy Ira and another guy whose name I won't say. These are all from Parks and Rec. If you don't watch that show, occasionally I'll make references to it that will fly over people's heads. But I am Ron Swanson. I'll be right back. Buck Sexton. The Blaze Radio Network. Fascinating piece in the Wall Street Journal, um, My Unhappy Life as a Climate Heretic. Spent a couple of minutes talking about this one. We all know about climate change, hysteria, and how they it's really a, a religious belief uh, where the earth is sort of in place of God, and it's an excuse for totalitarianism, and they take this as, well, you either want to save the planet or you don't, and if that's your barometer, you can do anything, right? This piece written by Roger uh, Pilkey, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his last name right, but whatevs, uh, it starts out this way. Much to my surprise, I showed up in the WikiLeaks releases before the election in a 2014 email a staffer at the Center for American Progress, founded by John Podesta in 2003, took credit for a campaign to have me eliminated as a writer for Nate Silver's 538 website. Uh, in the email, the editor of the think tank's climate blog bragged to one of its billionaire donors, Tom Steyer, I think it's fair to say that without climate progress, Pilkey would still be writing on climate change for 538. A couple of things. here. First of all, this is just a window into the mind of the left. Um, they don't seek to win the argument. They seek to destroy people. And it's a disgrace. And I look forward to the day when I have the kind of, uh, honestly, the kind of impervious or relatively impervious platform. And if I'm going to be totally frank with you, the sort of, you know, financial stability where I can just let it rip. Um not there yet. You all give me the platform, but the financial stability is yet to come. And uh, you know, I'm not yet in a I'm not yet in a place where, if I was sort of under assault and these different leftist media blogs tried to get me fired or tried to silence me, I could easily weather the storm. Right? You need to sort of be at a certain level um, where. You can fight back, and also you know that you're going to be able to pay the mortgage. Not that I own a house, but you know what I mean. Pay the mortgage for the foreseeable future. Um, but that's how the left does business, especially on climate change things. They're not just trying to win the argument. They're trying to destroy people. Um, but this guy, and th why this is so fascinating is that he is a climate change believer. He thinks that, that climate change is an urgent threat. He thinks that it's man-made. He, he's, he's on board with all that stuff. So you got to think, okay, well, how is this going to be an interesting, you know, another story, another sort of self-congratulatory story about a, an academic or a journalist writing about how the, the perils of climate change threaten us all. And he's sort of standing athwart this literal flood that is coming and it's going to kill us all. Uh, but he made a little boo-boo. 
he couldn't go along with the obvious lie that anybody of a certain basic intelligence quotient should be able to figure out and, and, and should discard that there's a big storm. Oh, gosh, it was caused by climate change. And not only is that bizarre because big storms have been around for as long as we've had weather systems, but in fact, when you look at the data, storms are not getting, and this is people like Tom Friedman and other just bloated, self-loving, pompous, uh, bass-ackwards, intellectually vapid journalists out there will say stuff like, you know, um, the hots are getting hotter, the wets are getting wetter. I mean, this is idiocy. This is idiocy masquerading as sophistication. And this guy, here's what he says. He says, yes, storms and other extremes still occur with devastating human consequences, but history shows they could be far worse. No Category 3, 4, or 5 hurricane has made landfall in the U.S. since Hurricane Wilma in 2005, by far the longest such period on record. Uh, That means accumulative economic damage from hurricanes over the past decade is some $70 less and the long-term average would lead us to expect, based on my research with colleagues. This is good news, and it should be okay to say so. Yet in today's hyper-partisan climate debate, every instance of extreme weather becomes a political talking point. All this guy did was look at the very obvious data, which shows you that storms are uh, that major storms and major storm systems are not more frequent in this country than before, are not more damaging than before. And this is just verifiable fact. These are ju- these are just facts. They they do not care about the hysteria. They're just they are there, and he just pointed this out. And for this, he had to be eliminated. I, I mean, you know, his voice had to be eliminated. I should say. Uh, they decided that it was too much, and th- they got him. They insisted on getting him fired from five thirty eight. Uh, he also pointed out, based on the consensus of the International Panel, uh, Governmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, and peer, peer-reviewed research, that the global cost of disasters was increasing at a rate slower than GDP growth, which is very good news, essentially saying that disasters are getting less disastrous for the world, natural disasters, and he's pointing that. But you see, the left knows that it's very useful after a storm when people have lost houses and everything to say, see, climate change. If you don't want to do something about it, you don't care about these people who lost their homes to a hurricane. You don't care about people that drowned in a tsunami. Climate change, it's just about emotionalizing the issue and the facts be damned. And all he did was point that out. He didn't say that climate change is – he says climate change is real. Climate change, And I disagree with him on all this stuff. Climate change is going to really destroy the planet. It is man-made and all that. He's on board – He's on board for 90% of the climate change hysteria, but that last 10% about the storms and his research on that made him completely persona non grata. In fact, worse than that, made him a target for intellectual elimination. This is how these people play the game. I mean, they are the friggin' worst. Um, And climate change is a place where you see a lot of this happening. All right, team, much more coming back in a few. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Buck Sexton. 
Um, I thought we had the guest. Do we don't have the guest now? That's weird. I was about to introduce our next guest, but then we dropped our next guest uh, accidentally. So that's um, let's talk about something else. In the meantime, let's find another segment on the fly, Buck Sexton. Let's see what kind of radio ninja moves you've got. Um, obviously, a ton of them. Uh, so that's we could always discuss uh, action movie quotes. Just kidding. I think we've got we got him now. All right, here he is. Steve Moore is a Heritage Foundation Distinguished Fellow, an economist, and a Trump economic advisor. Steve, appreciate you coming back. Thanks for joining. Boy, it's great to be with you. Thanks so much. Uh, let's first talk about your piece in the Washington Times about the blue state depression. As we discuss Trump policies, I think people should also keep in mind, well, what have blue state, what have Democrat policies given us in recent years up to this point? And a state-by-state comparison, as you talk about in your piece, shows that there's a pretty stark contrast between the economic fate of red and blue. Yeah, if you want to see how you know tax reduction and balanced budgets and less regulation can work to create jobs, look at the difference between what's happening in, in the red states, uh, you know, like Florida and Texas and Tennessee that have no income tax versus the blue states that have very high income taxes and very heavy regulation and uh, forced union rules, uh, states like California and New York and Massachusetts and Rhode Island and those states. And, we, you know, we found a massive difference. So uh, just one rule of thumb is that for every job that's being created in the blue states in America, about two jobs are being created in the red states. So that's where all the job growth employment is. Uh, We also found that of the 10 states that Hillary Clinton um, carried by the biggest percentage, you know, again, states like California and states like New York and states like Massachusetts, those states, um, every one of those states over the last 10 years lost domestic migration to the to uh, other states. So people are leaving. They're voting with their feet against liberal policies. So there you have an outflow of people who realize that high taxation is no fun, that low or no job growth is is a bad idea. And yet somehow it seems like, Steve, this doesn't filter into the national conversation about how to run a country, right? We we can look at the states as as laboratories of, well, a whole bunch of different things. But as economic experiments, I mean, California should be paradise. And clearly, because the way it's run, people don't care. It's, it's, It's not paradise for them. Uh, do you think that the Trump campaign is going to be able to, or not the Trump campaign, the Trump presidency will be able to make some headway using, you know, using these examples? I hope so. And by the way, you know, you, you said uh, California is paradise. It is paradise when it comes to the weather, the natural beauty of the state, the incredible natural resources. Uh, but what isn't paradise is their public policies that that have, uh, you know, environmental extremism, um, forced union policies, very high tax on the rich, very high welfare benefits. So what you've gotten in uh, California is, uh, oh, this is unbelievable. Over the last 10 years, a million more people have left California than have come into California from other states. I mean, that's just incredible. How do you screw up California? It's because they have the highest taxes and regulations in the, in the land. So you would, you would think that this would be a lesson that you know, we could create more jobs as a nation if we make America look, make more, look more like Texas and more like Florida and less like California and New York. By the way, Texas and Florida have both gained a million people over the last 10 years, so they must be doing something right. Yeah, it would seem that the, the proof is in the pudding here and, and the numbers don't lie, and yet uh, d- Democrats are, are really upset about even proposed Trump policies going forward when it comes to the economy. But the, the one place where it seems that there's dissension among, well, w- within the Trump camp and, and within Trump supporters in the Republican Party right now has to do with trade. I know we've talked this a bit before, but the carrier, the carrier deal um, that's gotten a lot of attention 
is this uh, sort of a taste of things to uh, taste of things to come down down the road, or is this sort of a one off? How do you view it? That's a good question. I think uh, I think that uh, Donald Trump was sort of um, setting an example and uh, basically sending a message to Americans and especially the people in industrial Midwestern states that have seen a decline in their uh, manufacturing base that he's very serious about trying to bring back their jobs and save their jobs and make sure that uh, these become prosperous places again. So I, I really applaud what he did there where he said to this company, look, you're thinking about moving a thousand jobs out of Indiana and moving them to Mexico City. He said, don't do that now. He said, we're going to be cutting your taxes. We're going to get re- regulations off your back. We're going to make Indiana and in America a more competitive place to do business. And uh, the state of Indiana threw a few incentive, tax incentives in, and lo and behold, uh, a thousand jobs have been saved. And I, I don't want to see that done all the time because the president can't save this economy one one company at a time. But I think it just set, uh, set a tone that he is very serious about about uh, bringing jobs back. And on the issue of the 35 percent tariff on on imports from country from companies that uh, outsource factories, outsource jobs, that leave the United States for a, a whole a whole host of reasons. Uh, you see that really happening? I mean, is that is that what this is that what he's heading for, or is that sort of a, a beginning point for negotiations? Uh, you know, I think he's using a club there. I mean, I, I'm against tariffs personally. I think tariffs are a terrible idea. Tariffs are just taxes on American consumers, so it just makes the things we buy more expensive. Um, what I'd like to do is see this all done through the tax system. You know, we have the dumbest tax system in the world. We 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 tax what we produce here with American workers, but we don't tax what's brought in and is, is uh, produced by Japanese workers or Korean workers or Mexican workers. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. Let's at least have a level playing field between what we produce and what we import. And so what I would do, and, I, and Donald Trump's talking about possibly doing this, is change from a system where we tax where we produce at home to a system where we tax where things are actually consumed here in the United States. So when that, you know, automobile comes in from, you know, Korea, it, it, there's going to be a tax imposed on it, just as they, they impose a tax when we bring in things to those countries. Now, you're quoted in this NPR article here saying Donald Trump's victory has changed the Republican Party into a more populist working class party in some ways that conservatives like myself will like and some that we will be uncomfortable with. Let's let's yep. break this statement down, uh, if you don't mind, Steve. What are some of the ways that a more populist working class party will go over well with conservatives? And then we can go with the uh, not so well. But how, how will it go over well or what will go over well? Well, I think it's what, what Trump has done is created a national consensus or at least, you know, voter voting um, consensus that we have to cut our taxes and cut our regulations and get government out of the way. Drain the swamp, which was the closing argument that uh, Donald Trump made to the American people, uh, was about taking power away from Washington and giving it back to the people. Now, if you're a conservative, you, you have to love that message. You know, you have to love the idea of, you know, instead of having the U.S. Department of Education spend $20 billion accomplishing nothing, we take that $20 billion, give it to the states, and let the states give it to the parents so they can choose good schools. I mean, it's all about decentralizing, about um, drain the swamp means, you know, less power to the politicians and the lobbyists and the, and the rule makers and more uh, power to the people. I think it's a very conservative message. Now, what are the ways that uh, we can, I mean, I assume we've seen some of them already, right? There's the That's- criticism of picking winners and losers in the market. There's the tariffs. Yeah. Uh, what, what else should, should, should true free market conservatives be uh, prepared for, at least in theory, with the Trump administration on the economy? 
Well, I, you know, I worked with Donald Trump for the last three months of this campaign and really, you know, had an amazing time doing it. And, and I, I think the man has incredible political and policy instincts that are generally conservative. Not always, but for the most part, very conservative. Um, I think that there are some areas where I disagree with them. I disagree with them on trade. I think we should be a free trade nation, although some of the trade deals with China and so on need to be renegotiated because they don't play by the rules. Um, and on immigration, I tend to be more pro-immigration. Um, and, I, and I think uh, I hope that, as I told Donald Trump, if you're going to build that wall, I hope it has big gates. And, and he said it would. Uh, and then also in the infrastructure spending, you know, I, you know, all this talk about federal infrastructure spending. You know, we don't have to spend a trillion dollars on new infrastructure. I mean, most of that should be done by the private sector and should be done by the states. And uh, I worry that, you know, we're going to we're going to waste a lot of money if we do that. So. Uh, and by the way, if we spend it, there's a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it. And I hope he spends it on, poly, on projects that really add to growth, not wasteful things like mass transit projects to nowhere. I was about to ask you about infrastructure. <laughs> That's a, yeah. probably a good transition point. Trump, people have talked about a trillion dollar Trump infrastructure plan. Uh, do you have any insight or, or can you e- even give us some informed guesses as to, well, one, is that really a thing that's going to happen? And two, what does that look like? Because people that were talking about infrastructure under Obama a few years ago and how great it would be, including, you know, Obama was talking about how great it would be himself. They seem all opposed to this idea now. So other than Trump being president, has anything changed? I'm still waiting for all those shovel-ready projects. Remember, they were supposed to get uh, what, eight to ten years ago. Uh, that never really showed up. Um, and uh, you know, so I think um, Obama proved that you can waste a lot of money on infrastructure and get nothing in return because we still have potholes in my streets, and I don't know about yours. And so I, I live um, in New York City. It, it is a pothole, but go ahead. <laughs> exactly. So uh, we wasted eight hundred billion dollars and almost got nothing. We we got to make sure that uh, that uh, Donald Trump doesn't repeat those mistakes. We have to be very thoughtful thoughtful about what projects are being funded. We have to be very uh, uh, cognizant of who's, who's funding them. I, I believe more, much more of this can be about the private sector. If you, if we, the big infrastructure problem in the United States is, is capital investment by private businesses in their factories, in their plants, and uh, in all of the projects that need to be built so that we have a vibrant private sector. Um, so I, I'd like to see, you know, private infrastructure spending, not public infrastructure spending. And then finally, you know, we'd, I'll give you another example. We need pipelines in this country. We need a national network of pipelines so we can get the energy we produce, and we're going to produce a lot more of it, to the markets where it's necessary. Well, you need you need a national network of pipelines to do that. They've been held up by Obama. Now, that's not going to cost a penny of taxpayer money to build uh, tens of billions of dollars of new pipelines in this country. I think the politics of the pipelines have been uh, very well highlighted with the last 11. I, I just learned this in the last 24 hours. It's only the last 1,100 feet of the Dakota Access Pipeline that is uh, being prevented now that the Army Corps of Engineers has been told to stand down on because of the Obama administration there's no way that pipeline's not going to get finished. And the notion that they need to, quote, consider alternative routes when you're at 11, 000, uh, 1,170 miles and you've got 1,100 feet to go, there's no alternative route. There's just finishing the route. Well, I think you're exactly right. And by the way, this has nothing to do with 
you know, polluting the water and things like that. That's ginned up by the Sierra Club and Earth First and the Radical Environmentalists. What this is really about, their agenda to stop the pipeline, is not to keep the water clean. They don't want America to produce American energy. They don't want coal. They don't want oil. They don't want gas. They, they really think we can power, you know, $18 trillion industrial economy with windmills. It's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. So people should not call it. Look, of course, if we build infrastructure, you have to do it in ways that provide, you know, protects our clean air, including water. But we can do that. We can build a nation. And by the way, pipelines are the most environmentally safe way to transport oil and gas. It's much better than uh, rail cars that can turn over and cause huge fires or trucks that derail and so on. So, uh, you know, pipelines are good for the environment and good for the economy. Steve, are we, are we? I mean, I'm going to ask you, so I guess I shouldn't ask if we're allowed to ask you, but you're, of course, allowed to not answer, as you know. Are you maybe going to be involved officially in the administration in some capacity? Do we have any sense of that yet? You know, I don't know. I spent. I would love to help Donald Trump pass the tax bill that uh, Larry Kudlow and I helped write. Um, I think it's such an urgent priority. So if Donald Trump asked me to do that, I would, you know, you can't say no to the president. Um, we will see. Uh, you know, so uh, ask me that next month when I do your show, and I'll, I'll let you know. Fantastic. All right. We'll have you back as always, Steve. Really appreciate <laughs> you joining. Steve Moore, he's at the Heritage Foundation. Where he's a distinguished fellow. He's an economist and a Trump economic advisor. Appreciate you joining, sir. Good to have you. Thank you so much. Uh, team, we're going to hit a break, and we're right back. This is the Buck Sexton Show. The Blaze Radio Network. This is the Buck Sexton Show. I've been talking to you a lot, team, about the uh, the freak out that's been happening after the Trump victory with many leftists. And, you know, they're they're scared. They're freaked out. They want to cry. They got all these problems going on. And yet this one, I got to say, is is too much. Uh, it's from it's on the published on the Washington Post dot com. And look, I think this was under the what section is this even under? I don't know. But it was published in the Washington Post. I thought it might be a parody at first, but it's not. Trump's election stole my desire to look for a partner. Uh, And first of all, she starts off with, in August, I went on six dates in one week. I had decided that I was ready to look for a partner. I got to tell you, six dates, that's a lot of, that's just a lot of dates. I mean, it's a lot of new people to, uh, to meet over the course of one week. I mean, I think two or three dates is, you know, is plenty. Uh, But that's, you know, to each, to each his or her own. Um, and then she goes into these two men and uh, everything was sort of, um, you know, it was the usual kind of dating story. But then she has to tell her daughter that Trump won the election and she's so upset and so terrified that she no longer wants to have a boyfriend. Now, how those things are connected or you can sort of go from one to the other, I don't know. I don't know what to say. I don't know how to how to explain that, why the victor- the uh, victory of a presidential candidate would make somebody no longer seek meaningful romantic companionship is that's beyond my powers of explanation. Uh, but I, I do think it ties into this broader theme of, wow, the, uh, the Democrat, not all of them, obviously, but a lot of Democrats have just taken this whole thing way too far and are so freaked out about it. Uh, and, uh, this is yet another instance of it. 
Um, my focus had to be on my community of friends that are, are my family. I need, I need to fiercely love the people close to me instead of learning to love someone new. Uh, to reach out to others could weaken the bonds that hold my family together. I can't. I just told him I can't. Um, why not? It's okay. You can date just because Trump won doesn't, and you're a Democrat doesn't mean you can't date. I would think that dating would be a good idea. Maybe get your mind off the election, you know? Maybe mellow out a little bit. Go out, have some fun. Go see that new movie with somebody in it that you like. I don't even know what the movies that are out right now. I don't know. Maybe, you know, have have a couple margaritas and forget all about the election. Team, pleasure to have you with me as always. Until tomorrow, Shield High. The Buck Sexton Show. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. Oh.